6-8 church, uh, we're based on the verse out of the Bible, Micah 6-8, so if you'd read the bolded parts with me. Uh, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, here at 6-8, we strive to do that. We strive to make sure that we're doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my full-time job is with a ministry called Fathers in the Field, which helps pair up men in the church with boys whose fathers aren't in their lives to lead them and to mentor them. Um, I'm uniquely geared for that ministry because, as uh, has aptly been pointed out to me, I have an overactive sense of justice. I really have an overactive sense of justice. You don't have to hang out with me very long to know I have an overactive sense of justice. Uh, what I mean by that is <clears throat> when I see the things that are going on that are wrong, I am the guy that wants to make everybody put those things right. And as a natural, innate part of my personality is that I honestly believe that as Christians, you should be doing it with me. And I tend to be super overly zealous at times about that. And that is not me apologizing for it because I just know that's uniquely how I am. And so this morning, I point that out because this morning is going to be super exciting. David always gives me the, the ones where my overactive sense of justice gets to latch on to something and go totally nuts. So today, if you leave kind of like feeling like you got hit by a two-by-four, chances are you did. So we're in 2 Peter. So if you, have your bio, if you have Bibles or if you have the Bible app, or even if you don't, I'm going to have them put it on the screen anyway. We're going to do the entirety of 2 Peter chapter 2. The, the premise of 2 Peter chapter 2 is dealing with false prophets and dealing with heresy. So I want to give you a couple of terms so that you have an idea of what we're talking about ahead of time uh, and then the, the importance of it. So the terms that you really need to know for today the two really key ones are going to be heresy and orthodoxy. And I just love big words. Do you guys love big words? I love big words. Heresy, in, in essence, is being taught the wrong thing. That is where somebody who's supposed to guide you and instruct you is giving you misinformation. They are taking you down the wrong path. Orthodoxy, in essence, is correct teaching. So it's them trying to take you down the right path. <clears throat> For those of you who read, which I, I realize in, in this culture, it's the amount of people that read is dying, right? Very few people read. I'm a really, 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 really well-read person. Let me explain that to you. Um, I love to read the news. I love to read books. I love to read and see what's going on, and I, just, I, just, I would read all the time if I could. I average about a book every two weeks. I just love to read because I want to kind of know what's going on. And because I have an overactive sense of justice, I also have an overactive fear of being wrong. I do. I, I'm, I'm terrified of being wrong. And especially in this role when I'm up here, I'm really terrified of being wrong. Because not only if I'm wrong, if, I, if I'm preaching to you in the morning and I'm explaining something to you or we're having a theological conversation or just a life conversation and I lead you wrong, the Bible says I will be held accountable for my actions and your actions. It's one of the few times that like, people are actually held accountable for other people's actions. It, James just says not every, not, you shouldn't all want to be teachers because don't you realize that those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard? So I'm, I am, I have an overactive sense of fear of being wrong, so wanting to make sure. So when we're talking about orthodoxy and heresy, it's important that we understand the terms because we live in a society that does not hold the same values that we hold as a church. They will tell you that they, they figured out the things we're doing wrong and want to fix us, but they don't hold the same truths that we do. And then the other problem is we have a whole lot of people in our society that are Christians that are going the wrong direction, and they're telling you that we're doing it wrong and they've figured it out. So I, I realize part of what we do as a church is we're talking about walking humbly. So a, a lot of times it sounds very arrogant for me to stand up here or for David to stand up here and tell you we know what we're doing and we're doing it right. <laughs> But 
there are times you need to hear that we know what we're doing and we're doing it right. Because to do it wrong would be deadly. So I tell you, you know, I like to read and the, the things I like to read. You know, I avoid, <clears throat> this is some of the, this will, I'm going to start twisting you now. I avoid, I avoid certain things. I don't read a lot of Christian books. I don't watch a lot of other sermons. I don't watch like, I don't go online and watch sermon series. So a lot of times when people are talking about these great pastors and the sermons they've preached, I have no idea who they're talking about. And, and I want you to understand, I have two, I hold two master's degrees, in, one in theology and one in divinity. So I have read a lot of stuff. I, I, even in seminary, I had no idea who they were talking about. And I had, a, I had a fellow student ask me one time, why is it that you don't read these guys' books, or you don't watch their, their sermons, their sermons are so amazing. And I told them, because I'm lazy. And they said, what do you mean? You're, you read all the time. What do you, how, what do you mean you're lazy? I said, you realize when I listen to a Christian sermon, when I listen to a Christian music, and when I read Christian books, I actually have to work harder? Because I have to actually be thinking through what they're saying. I have to actually be thinking, is this person speaking the truth? Are they actually doing a good job in theology? I have to actually think that out, and I don't want to think about it. When I pick up a secular book or I, I listen to like a TED Talk or something like that, and it's a secular person, I already know two-thirds of what they're going to give me isn't true. So I can be lazy. I go, oh, well, if I get truth out of it, that's great, but I don't expect it going in. But when you hear things from a Christian our brains were trained as believers to naturally think what that person's going to tell us is true. But do you realize that a lot of times it's not? So as a Christian, we have to be very, very proactive in the messages we take in. That's one reason when David gets up here and preaches, what, what is the thing he tells you? He says, don't take my word for it. Go and read your Bible. Right? So you have a really wonderful gift. We live in, a, in an age when everybody has access to a Bible, either in print or electronically or on the internet. You can go to the library and see it electronically or in print. That's an amazing thing. The invention of the printing press changed how we read and our, and our access to those things and our ability to go and check it out for ourselves. And so, for me, we're going to talk about this in 2 Peter, and I'm going to explain some of the history behind what's going on, but I'm not going to really dwell there a whole lot. I want you to start thinking through where we live today and the cultural messages that are being given to you, and I want us to, together as a church, as a body, be really, really proactive in what we're doing and thinking about. So 2 Peter chapter 2, and if, uh, they're going to put it on the board as well. We're going to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to go back and kind of work through it. It's just easier that way. So, <clears throat> pardon me. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he, brought, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distracted, or pardon me, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, 
though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which, of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong at, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to, to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, uh, revealing in their or reveling, pardon me, in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who, lo who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. They are, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption." For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and, over, and overcome, <coughs> me. the last state has become worse than the first for them. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the, true, what the true proverb says has happened to them, quote, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, if that isn't an uplifting message for a Sunday morning, right? You're all sitting in your seats going, wow, that sounds so exciting. <laughs> Woo! The praise band back up here, and we'll just start worshiping and singing this particular scripture as, as a song. This is why David lets me do these. It's super exciting. Then, then when you come and you hear him preach, you go feel all uplifted and you go home and you're like, yeah. And then I get up here and you go, oh, it's the wrong Sunday to come. <laughs> People are filtering out the back. Okay. Why do we worry about false prophets? In Israel, in the past, right, Peter's writing. Let's back up just a second. Peter is writing to a church that is a mix of people who were Jewish, who had become Christians, and people who were Gentiles who had become Christians. So there's a mixture of things that he's writing about going in. And, and he's saying, look, in the past, for, for those of you who are Jewish, there were false prophets that came in. And if you read all through the Old Testament, God's prophet would get up and say something to the effect of, stop it. Just stop it. And the people would be like, stop what? All of it. You know exactly what we're talking about. Just stop it. That's right. Trey's back there with me. Solidarity. Stop it. And then, they, and then they would go through and tell the people all the things they're supposed to stop. So one of the things I get to do, and again, in, in the ministry that I normally do, because I'm trying to get churches and men to see the needs of the fatherless and step up and be champions of the fatherless like God is, I preach through Isaiah, just the front part. So it's a great example of prophets, Right? In the front part of Isaiah, Isaiah gets up and says, you know what, God's fed up with you people. And they're like, but we do all the festivals we're supposed to do, and we bring all the sacrifices we're supposed to bring, and we're doing everything he told us to do. And he said, you know what he says? You go through all the motions, but your heart is somewhere else. And then he says, you're supposed to be taking care of the widows and the, the, the fatherless, and instead you're exploiting them and taking advantage of them, and their blood is on your hands. So, I won't listen to your prayers anymore. I won't accept your sacrifices anymore. I won't accept your atonements anymore. I'm going to send you away for destruction until you learn what it is that I want. And they're like, what do you want? And Isaiah says, I want your heart to be in the right spot. Right? That's, and so, 
as a good prophet, that's what I do. I, I do the same one, and I say God is calling us to step forward and love the things He loves and do those things. It's a call to stop doing the wrong and start doing what's right. And it's hard with our hearts, right, because we think a lot of times if we just go through the motions, well, I go to church on Sunday morning. I tithe. I, I show up to those things. I'm good with God. And our heart's somewhere else. So then the false prophets would come in and say, oh, you're fine. God's not really mad. Isaiah's crazy. He's not speaking for God. You guys are great. You're doing a wonderful job. Just keep doing the things you're doing. I mean, what did God ask you to do? He asked you to bring some offerings and burnt offerings, and you're doing that, right? You're showing up and doing the festivals you're supposed to do. That's great. The, the rest, God doesn't care about the rest of that stuff. You're fine. And then if you read Isaiah, what happens to the people of Israel? They go into captivity, and they're punished, all the punishments. And it's really neat, because all you have to do is go back to Exodus and Deuteronomy and read what God told Moses would happen if they were disobedient. He said, look, if, you're, if you obey and you do what's right and your heart's in the right spot, I will bless you, and you'll stay in the land and be prosperous forever. And if you're disobeying, I will send you into a foreign land, into captivity, where you will learn obedience, and then I will bring you back. And as they were marching out of the city, they must have gone, well, I guess Isaiah was right. right. In the same way, the Gentiles also heard truth. They didn't hear the same truth, but they would have people that would come and say, look, if you continue on in this behavior, it's going to end in destruction. Sometimes it was the Jews that was coming to them. You look at the story of Jonah. Jonah went to the Assyrian Empire, who, by the way, were notorious for destroying and killing literally all men, women, and children in the city when they would capture it. They had, they had pictures in Assyria of horses riding in blood up to the bridles, mounds of human skulls. And Jonah's like, I'm going there? Yeah. They don't know you. Yeah. So God would send them. So there's these instances. And so what Peter is saying is, look, in the church, you were delivered this wonderful life-saving message, right? So let's talk about what that life-saving message is. The Bible very clearly teaches that human beings have a sin problem, right? We sin, we do selfish things, and we worry about ourselves, and we worry about where we're going, what's going to happen to us, and if we're good enough, or we're important enough. And the Bible just says that sin problem, that selfish problem is driving you away from God. Think of it in terms like this. God created out of nothing, Right? As Christians, we would say that. God created out of nothing. Nothing existed but God, and God said, I'm going to create. So out of nothing, God created. And our sinfulness as human beings was driving us away from God, so back towards uncreation, back towards nothing. That's the direction we were headed. We were unraveling and becoming not what God created us to be. And so God loved us so much that he came and he lived the perfect life in the person of Jesus Christ that we are required to live but can't live, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, conquering the thing that holds all men in fear, all people in fear, which is death. When death, it's, we sang about it this morning, when death met the author of life, what happened to death? It died. Surprise! It's like the surprise ending, Right? The author of life is killed on a cross, and he's seemingly dead. But no, death meets the author of life, and it dies, and so he gets up. That's pretty amazing. I, 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 I don't know that everybody sees Christianity the way I do. I find it all really fascinating and amazing, right? So Jesus raises from the dead, and he becomes the first fruits of those who put his faith, their faith. By putting your faith in Christ for salvation— when death hits your body, it will die because it's dead. Death is dead. Death has no hold over you as a believer. As a matter of fact, we can, if you really want to talk afterwards, there's a deep theological conversation about what that does for all humanity, which is really interesting. But, but as a Christian, you have life in Christ. But then, there are, believe it or not, are certain things that are required of us. We are still required to follow after Christ in our lives. The Bible says that the old us... The one that was alive to sin and dead to God is reversed itself. There's a new creation. You died with Christ and you rose again in the same way that he rose with a new body. 
your new person is dead to sin and alive to God. That means when sin comes by to entice you, you can just not go with it. That's cool, man. Yeah, I was enslaved to that sin, but now when it comes by, I just go, nope, I'm good. The beauty of it is that happens in a corporate setting. Do you realize that? You hear about it every time I get up here. So if you're new here today, you'll get to hear this every time I come up here. You can't, we all came to faith in Christ as individuals, and then you died and stopped being an individual and started being part of the corporate body of Christ. That means when sin comes by and asks you to go with it, we often think that, well, I keep going with it. There's something wrong with me. Well, the problem is instead of going to the other parts of the body of Christ and saying, I am struggling every time this comes by, my habit is to go with it. Would you help me? We just go with it and then try to cover it up and not let anybody know we're doing it. I know it doesn't seem applicable, but believe it or not, that's what Peter is saying, right? How is it that we get caught up in this? Because when you became a Christian, you became a part of the body of Christ, which means we rely on one another in this room. We all need each other. That's why when David gets up here, a lot of times you'll hear him talk about the commitment to the body of Christ, right? Commitment to this, to this church. At 6-8, the thing I love about 6-8, and one of the reasons my wife and I stayed is because they asked us to commit to them, like a relationship. You are important. When you put your faith in Christ, you need the body of Christ in order to make it. Because when sin comes by, corporately, all together, we're dead to it. We don't have to go. And if your brother or sister in Christ in this room knows you struggle with it, they'll come alongside and link arms with you and say, don't go. You're dead to that. That's not who you are anymore. Let's go serve the Lord. But if it hit, meets you on the road by yourself, chances are you'll go with it. Because somewhere along the way, we stopped playing church together. So what Peter is, is talking about, false prophets are going to come in. What are they going to teach you? destructive heresies. So the key to it is, look, if you came to faith in Christ, church, both then and now, and you're together, salvation is through Christ alone. It's life-changing. Do you realize that God then sends himself to live in you? The Holy Spirit comes to live in you when we talk about what are some of the heresies that go on? I decided that it would be really interesting to talk about some of the heresies that go on with us as we go through this. So it says, look, false teachers are going to come and there's going to be heresy and it's going to lead you astray. It's going to take you the wrong direction. So I read this really interesting article uh, in the Washington Post and it was talking about they interviewed 3,000 people uh, for their religious faith and most of them were, were evangelical Christian people. And they asked them these, these regular theological questions that all Christians should be able to answer. And 65% of those people failed. And as a, as a person who disciples other people and is a leader and all those things, I went, I wonder what they failed on. So I read this article, right? One of the parts of the article was, it says, well, is the Holy Spirit a person or a presence, an essence? It's a really great theological question, right? So I sat down with some of the leaders in this church here a couple of nights ago, and I asked them the question. And half the group failed. Because we don't think somewhere along the way as a church, not just 6-8, I mean universally as a church, we've actually stopped talking about the things that make Christianity unique. We've stopped teaching and talking about the deep truths of what we believe as Christians. And it's allowed heresy to start to slip in and lead people the wrong direction. Because I'm telling you right now, today, if we're sitting here, you've already answered the question I asked in your head. That's why those questions are great. The Holy Spirit is a person. And it's important that we say he's a person. Because if not, then you're not a Trinitarian Christian. You're a Bitarian Christian, if you're even Trinitarian. You end up with a lot of theological angst. By the way, that, that, I'm the guy that used to, when I lived in Colorado, we used to have the Mormons come over all the time. I love Mormons. Half my family are Mormons. I mean, really, my, I have an uncle who's a bishop, like really high up. He taught 
in the seminaries in Salt Lake and in Washington. I mean, the guy is a huge, big wig guy. Always trying to convert me. We have the greatest conversations. I love him to pieces. Do we, that's part of Christianity too, right? We're supposed to love non-Christian people, even though they disagree with us and they're, we're supposed to love them anyway. But it doesn't mean that you accept what they teach you. But I know lots of people who have left Christianity for Mormonism. It's weird, but it's because they say, well, you know, yeah, God is God, right? But Jesus isn't God. The Holy Spirit isn't God. The Holy Spirit probably just refers to God as he moves through people, but it's not a separate person. And Jesus certainly isn't God. He, he's just a guy that was chosen from among his spiritual brethren to go and lighten. He's no, no spiritually greater or less than the devil is. They just have their own roles, man. And then they'll go through your Bible and show it to you. And if you don't understand what it is you believe as a Christian, you end up going the wrong direction. See, too often I think we don't talk about it. We're, we're afraid to come up and talk about theology and talk about what is it we believe and what are the, the, the real basic, hardcore principles we believe as Christians because we're like, well, that's too much for people or we don't want to muddy the water. There's so many divisions in Christianity where we, we balk and argue about things, that, but we've sold you short, right? Because when we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about the third person of the Trinity, the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is living in you. By the way, that should freak you out. Freaks me out. Some mornings I wake up and I'm like, ah! The Holy Spirit's living in me. What am I doing? Oh my Children are jumping. Everybody that was almost asleep, you're awake now. <laughs> but think about that. God himself dwells in you. So when Peter is talking about what are the things we believe in about Christ, part of what we believe is the incarnation, that God himself came to dwell in human form. That means that God, who has no form because he's God, chose to put on a human form. So when he's Christ, he's completely Jesus and completely God all the time. I can't tell you how many classes I sat through. This happened to me last Saturday. I was out of town. I was in Billings, Montana, and, and I heard this statement, which some of you will go, yeah, and then I'll tell you you're wrong, and you'll be like, ah. But he was talking about how on the cross, what a, a horrible thing, and you know, God, Christ went and died on the cross for us, and and experienced even the father turning his back on him, which, by the way, is not biblical, nor theoretically possible. Jesus is always God. It's not like he does some things as Jesus the man and some things as Jesus God. Everything he does in the incarnation is both God and man at the same time. That's, by the way, astounding. And when he says, that God has forsaken him, God is letting him die on the cross, but he's not turning his back on him because he can't. There's still God. Do you realize that while Christ is on the earth in the incarnation, healing people and dying on the cross and doing all these amazing things, he is also holding the entirety of creation together, right? Because the Bible clearly tells us it's Christ, everything was made through Christ, and in him everything is held together and has its purpose and being. That's mind-blowing. We should be like, wow. And then to take it a step further and understand that Christianity is teaching that we are the reverse incarnation. We started out as humans, but then the Holy Spirit, God himself, now dwells in you. That's mind-blowing. But it's also the thing that gives us power as believers. It knits us together. We share the same Holy Spirit. That means that your actions affect me. My actions affect you. What I teach affects you. How I lead you affects you. Which is why you should always be reading your Bibles and asking those questions. Is what he's saying in the Bible? And if it's not, then you should go to that person and say, wait a minute, let's talk about this. But we need to understand we're knit together with one spirit. Peter is saying, look, false prophets are going to come in and they're going to bring in this destructive heresy, even denying the master, even saying, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't save you, he isn't powerful, he isn't God, all these things which we've heard. 
In that same survey, do you realize that 65, or actually it was 70%, 70% of the people said that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And then they answered the next question and said, but there are other ways to go to heaven. But that's not true. Jesus was very clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So you either put your faith in Christ and have it change your life and change the direction in which you're going, or you go to hell. And then I thought about, it's interesting because we live in a culture that says saying that is wrong. So do you realize a lot of churches aren't saying it anymore? Well, our culture says that it's wrong. It makes me some kind of a bigot for me to believe that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. How arrogant. How proud. And I think sometimes as Christians, we do act arrogant and proud with that. Look at us. I know where you're going. It's going to be hot. Don't worry about the rain. I know you complain about the rain and the cold, but don't worry. That's temporary for you. And we balk at that, but we've all been there. And there are times I'm that way. And I think, what am I thinking? I should see people that I know don't know Christ and be broken. I should look at them and love them so much and say, I I need to have compassion on them that they're being led into error. There are times that I go into churches and I I hear churches teaching heresy, because it does happen, by the way, strangely enough. In my job that I do, I get to go to lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of churches. I mean, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people. But there are times that some churches have even gotten to the point where where they've told people that their sensuality is whatever they want it to be. And Peter, Peter even notes it in here, right? He says in verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. There are lots of people who say, and here, here I, I, I figure I'm tweaking everybody anyway. I figure I'll ruffle everybody's dress today. That homosexuality is okay. I've heard, I've, I've heard really got great people, books of guys that I've read recently. And again, I don't read very many Christian books. <laughs> and I read this guy's book, and he's, he, he has a church in the South and very, very well known and all that stuff. And he's even saying that. Well, you know, homosexuality is not really a sin. And, you know, the church needs to change how they, how they do these things. And, but that's heresy. Homosexuality is wrong, just like adultery is wrong, just like, I don't know, five or six other physical sexual sins are wrong. But as Christians, we should be more readily willing to say this, it's wrong. That lifestyle is not the best that God has for you. That lifestyle will not lead you to life. But then we all have to admit that we're all broken sexually. That's part of the corruption. We are all broken sexually. And to say anything different would be a lie to yourself and everybody else. So rather, we should look on them with compassion. There was a, 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 I'm not going to mention names just because, but there was a pastor locally who isn't a pastor anymore, and he married this homosexual couple. And he said, well, how else will I minister to them and have voice in their life? And it's like, but what you've done is just said that God doesn't care. That's, a, that's bait and switch, right? That's like saying, come to my store and buy this fabulous fur coat for $1,000. And you get to the store, and the only one they have is the display model that they can't sell you. But don't worry. We have lots of other great things. They're a little more expensive, but that's okay. Telling somebody that their lifestyle will not end in death, knowing that it will end in death, and then letting them go, why do you hate them? Because, man, that's evil. That's flat, flat out evil. I've had, I've had lots of debates on that. That's evil, man. If you know that somebody's lifestyle is wrong and will end in death, and, you, and then you tell them it won't. But the heresy has existed for 2,000 years. Why do you want to go do that? No problem. And Peter says, you know what the problem is? Then all of a sudden, those people that are practicing that start to come in among you. And even though you know they're living that lifestyle, 
out there, you're still eating with them, and you're, and you're eating with them in your feast. So when you're getting together, because Christians in the early church would get together for meals. And the implication may even be that those people are coming to communion, and they're coming, and you're communing with them. And that's not necessarily the issue. The issue is that you're letting their sin go unvoiced, and you're not con- saying to them what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is affecting the body, and so then they're starting to have voice in the body, and when they have voice in the body, then they're starting to corrupt others in the body, and then you've let death in. I've told this analogy before. It's like having a gangrenous thumb, right? It's my gangrenous thumb analogy. I want you to know this gangrenous, so that everywhere you go, if you ever hear it, you're like, that's Rob's. But if, you have a, if you, your thumb has gangrene, shouting at your thumb to get well and then doing nothing will kill you. It requires you to fix it. But you can't ignore it either and say, no, oh, well, the thumb is choosing to be gangrenous, man. That's cool. Every part of the body's got its right to do what it wants to do, man. That's all right. It's still going to kill you. And if we as Christians in the body of Christ are connected and our sin affects one another and we're not calling it out for what it is in love, we are all not going to make it. I'm not saying you should go and beat people to death with your Bible because I don't think that's super constructive either. But if someone claims Christ and they have blatantly her sinning, you need to go to them and lovingly say, this is not the best that God has for you. You're claiming Christ, but then you're blatantly doing what the Scripture says you shouldn't do. And Peter, as he goes all the way down, right, towards the end, what he says is, if if those people have tasted, have tasted the truth, and yet continue on in their sin and and aren't brought back, and, and they just return to their lifestyle. So let's use it as an example. I'll use me. I don't mind. When I was in junior high and high school, I had a drinking problem. Not like, you know, everybody's, oh, yeah, man, I went to a party here and there. No, I had a, like, everyday drinking problem. I was trying to kill all the things that were wrong with my life. By the way, that doesn't work. It just makes things worse. But I, I did. I, I actively tried to kill it. Go me. So when I came to faith in Christ, that actually went away. It was, it was really weird. I know that it sounds weird, but... God actually took that problem, a seven-year-old problem, away. It just literally went away. It was fixed, and I was like, I had no desire to drink. I had no desire any of that. But if I went around, and I was a Christian, and as I was growing, I was telling everybody, you know, being drunk all the time is fine. God doesn't care. I do it. It's good. And I kind of went back to that. That's what Peter's talking about. If you know something is good and you've tasted it, and then you go back to the old lifestyle that you were saved from, right? Because he's talking about that. You're enslaved to that sin. The thing that masters you is the thing you are a slave to. So if your sin masters you, then you are a slave to sin. And he says, it's like a dog going back to its vomit. I love that analogy because if you have never seen a dog go back to his vomit, you've missed out. They do it. It's weird. Like, you're like, especially if you're a pet owner, you're like, don't do that. What are you doing? That came out of you for a reason. Why would you go back and eat it again? And I own two dachshunds, and they're not real bright, and they they do that. And you're like, ah, what's wrong with you? But that's what Peter is saying is, you know what? As Christians, if you are saved from sin, and then you come to a knowledge of the truth, and then you allow somebody to take you back to that lifestyle that you know is wrong, that you got saved from, it'll destroy you. Not it might be really bad, and you'll, but it'll destroy you. And so the problem with heresy in the church is that it oftentimes is scripturally based and sounds good. Isn't that frightening? I have a, the, 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 the theology degree I hold is in early church history, so the first 600 years of the church. And almost every argument between heterodoxy or heresy and orthodoxy was based in Scripture. Both sides had their Bibles open and were screaming at each other and arguing and fighting over what is it that we're saying and why. And we're going to go this way and we're going to take everybody with us. Because the very basic heresies sound right. 
Have you ever turned on your TV and watched Joel Osteen? And I know, I'm, I'm sure there's at least one Joel Osteen fan in every crowd. Joel Osteen is a heretic. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. You're more than welcome to disagree with me, and we can come up and read through our Bibles, but I will win. I'm sorry. What he's doing is he's promising people prosperity by making him rich. And Peter even talks about that, right? He says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They're hungry for your money. They're not hungry for your soul. You know what you were promised in Christianity? Again, I'm, the fun, I'm your fun friend. Christ promised you death. Yay. He did. When, when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up your cross daily and follow me. In the Roman world, when you picked up your cross, that was a death sentence. You were dead that day. No reprieves, no second chances, you were done. And you realize that the vast majority of Christians in the first 200 years of the church lost their lives for the gospel. And they went rejoicing on their way to be crucified and burned and fed the lions. They rejoiced. Do you know why they rejoiced? They were like, we must be doing something right. Because if Jesus was healing people and sharing the gospel and bringing people hope and they killed him for it, and they're killing us because we look like him, then we're doing something right. Because that's what we're promised if you're doing something right. If you're taking the gospel to people who need to, to hear it, who need to be healed, and your life is reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're reflecting his life, the result will be that people in the world will hate you. We live in a culture that hates being told Jesus is the only way. You're a you're a bigoted, bad person because you think you're right. How arrogant. Well, no, man. I, you can have this too. It's free. Right? It's free. Come, the gospel's free. I mean, it'll, it'll cost you all your sin and you'll have to like give up all your selfishness and start acting, you know, I don't know, like Jesus. But other than that, it's free. Right? So that's the beauty of Christianity is our culture is going to hate you. Let's face it. It's going to get worse, by the way. I'm, I'm not going to guys if you don't worry, kids. Our culture is going to accept the gospel. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. No. They hate the gospel for the same reason that before you became a Christian, you hated the gospel. Because it exposes the evil deeds that you do, and it exposes your weakness. And nobody likes to have their weaknesses exposed. And it just says, well, doing what you're doing is killing you, and there's no way to save yourself. Sorry. The gospel's offensive. I'm sorry. You can no longer be a homosexual. You can no longer be an adulterer. You can no longer be a thief. You can no longer be a murderer. <laughs> Really, there's a pretty long list. Practicing witchcraft and magic, you're going to have to stop that too. Sorry. It's a lifestyle change, but it's a lifestyle change that's amazing. And then with that, again, you're now invested in the body of Christ, and we're here for one another. The church would be a fragrant aroma to our culture if we would come to one another with our struggles and say, I am struggling in this way. Would you help me? And then instead of using those sins against each other, we said, yes, you're failing in this area. I get it. Let me help you. And then we would strengthen one another. And then when sin walked by, you wouldn't go with him anymore. You are dead to it, right? And you're alive to God, but you, you have to think of it in the corporate sense. If you think about yourself as an individual still that doesn't have things that affect the rest of the body, you're going to continue to struggle and fail. We are all in this together. That's why Peter is saying, some people, not only are they struggling with letting, you know, sensual sin in and sexual sin and, and lies and all these things, but they aren't listening to authority. They refuse to listen to authority. They refuse to stay bound together. If you're going to commit to a body, a Christian body, a church here, the only way for us to work for all of us is for you to submit to the authority of the leadership of the church. I'm sorry. I know, very anti-cultural. But it's not because 
The leadership of this church wants to run your life and dominate over you, but we love you and we want to care for you. The job of the pastor, which I think David does a really good job, and we all have room where we can grow, but part of, part of pastoring is loving the flock enough to say, I'm going to come alongside you and say, you can't do that anymore. Let's change your behavior. But it takes the whole body to do it. It takes a submitting to the authority of the church. It takes a, a, a willingness to say, I'm in this relationship with you. And the pastor's job is to teach you, to train you up for the works of ministry so that every single day of your life is spent sharing the gospel because that's what you're supposed to be doing. And I think sometimes we don't do it because we don't know the difference between heresy and orthodoxy. We're afraid of miscommunicating things. <laughs> Or we just don't feel strong and bold in what we believe. And if you're in that boat today and you're feeling, gosh, man, I really need a, a deeper hold on what we believe as Christians. Believe it or not, that's called discipleship. And I tell you, a lot of times churches fail at discipleship. If you want to be discipled, I would encourage you to come and talk to myself or talk to Jim, and we will figure out a way to make sure that you're being actively discipled where someone is sitting you down and talking about all the things that we believe as Christians and why, to strengthen you, to build you up, so that when people come with heresy and they try to take you away, you'll say, no, I can't go with you. That's not what I believe. It goes back to my Mormon thing, right? We used to open our house. We, the Mormon missionaries knew our house. In Colorado, they would come by, and sometimes it'd be like 100, 105 degrees, and you'd have these sweaty missionaries, and they knew they could come and sit in my house in the air conditioning, and I would give them water, because they don't drink coffee and tea and stuff, so I'd give them the water, and they could use the, the facility, and I told them right off the bat, you have a choice. If you want to sit and talk about religion, then please, by all means, do that. I was up front with them. I, the first time they came through, I shared with them what they believed, which, by the way, if you can do that, blows the missionaries, they blows their minds. They're like oh my gosh, are you ready to convert? <laughs> We're going to go back and tell the bishop it was the easiest con con conversion ever. It was so amazing. You go, I don't know, no, no. I just, it's important to know what you believe. So I explained to them what they believe. And I say, you know, I'm a Christian. We differ in a few things. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know. And you know, they know all the passages that we used to take Mormons to. And it's pretty neat. It's gotten better. It's like this, uh, you know, you were a, a class A football team, and they were like a sub A football team, and then they rose up, and then you're up. It's, it's a great competition. So then I would sit down and I would explain world religions to them. I explained all the religions of the world to them, like 37 different religions. Their eyes are like this big. And I said, you know, funniest thing, and all these religions, there's only two with an actual heaven and hell that people go to. I mean, like really definitively Islam. And I got to tell you, if you've never, if, you, if, if you're ever interested in sitting down and reading the Quran, I'll read the Quran with you and we'll talk about Islam. Even the adherents of Islam will struggle to get to heaven. But there is a definitive heaven and hell. <laughs> I said, and Christianity has a definitive heaven and hell. You realize everywhere else, it all just washes out? So I said to the missionary, to, the, to my Mormon missionary, if you're right and I'm wrong, we both go to heaven. Your heaven will probably be nicer than mine. I'm cool with that. Really, I've grown up poor. I've lived poor most of my life. I'm, I'm, I really am. I'm, I live in 800 square feet. I'm cool. We're good. <laughs> but I said, if I'm right and you're wrong, you go to hell. And they looked at me like I bit them. And they were like, and I said, but I love you enough that I don't want you to go to hell. You go to my door, you go door to door as an act of obedience for your own faith, and you really don't care whether I convert or not. That's honest. That's the truth. You don't care if I convert, but I care if you do. That's compassion. That's looking at a lost world as a Christian and saying, God loved me enough to save me and change my life. I should have enough compassion to do that with others. And so our house was always open to them. And they did. They came until they blacklisted me. <laughs> one, of my, one of the missionaries converted, <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah, they blacklist you and they go around your home. 
I think they may have my DNA because I still can't, even now living where I live now, I can't get Mormons to come visit me. And it's been like 13 years now. Sad. Makes my heart hurt. But why is it that Peter is insistent that the people be watching out for false prophets and heresy? Because that's what dilutes the church and draws people away. And all of a sudden, you find yourself who is a person who knows the truth and knows life headed towards death. Can you afford to do that? Peter says, no. Be aware. Be watchful. That's the same message that we would give to you today. Don't take our word for it. Read your Bibles. If you're reading your Bibles and you're confused, come and ask questions. If you don't feel like you're being discipled, you don't feel like you really know the tenets of Christianity, come and ask for help and we will help you. We want you to know what it is that we believe as Christians. Not just 6-8. As Christians. What is it that we believe about God? What is it we believe about Christ and about the Holy Spirit? What is it that we believe about our lives as believers? How can we hold each other accountable and hold each other up? That's, the, that's why we ask for commitment here. We want you to commit so that it's not, well, David offended me and so I left the church. And then we call you and try to get you to come back and you, well, you just offended me. That is not how Christians solve problems, kids. If you truly believe that you're part of the body of Christ, you, it's not, the toe can't get offended and walk away from the foot one day and just hope it all works out. It's, right? it's, it's goofy. You're like, so I love Paul's analogy. You go to the body and you, say, you go to the leadership and say, I have a problem, please can we talk? And I got to tell you that the leadership of this church, especially David, would lovingly, openly do that every single time. Because we care about where you're at. And that's what Peter's saying is really be thinking about and filtering through what are the things that are going on. No heresy from orthodoxy. Last thing that I'll tell you, and I, I, run, I never know how, what time I'm supposed to be done, but it's probably way later than it's supposed to be. If you worked for the U.S. Department of, of uh, the Treasury, they have counterfeit money that they, they, they fight counterfeit money all the time. Do you know how they train their agents? They don't put them in a room with all the different kinds of counterfeits. Counterfeits change all the time. They put them in a room for two years with actual U.S. currency, and they say, know your money. So that a, current, a treasury agent can go up to a stack of money that's real money and fake money and go up, and they'll be able to touch it, look at it. They know all the things to look for. They know how it feels. They know how it smells. They know everything about it so that when the fake comes up, they can spot it. Christianity is the same way. You need, to know, you need to know your Bible and what we believe as Christians and your faith in Christ so intimately that if somebody tries to slip you a counterfeit, you'll know it. And it's our job as leadership and our job as a church to help you do that. And if you ask, we will figure out all the things that need to be done to help you do that. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you, to know what it is that we believe and to teach. Pray that you would strengthen each of us, bind each of us together that we might strengthen one another. Thank you for your spirit living in us. Just pray that you would continue to help us to have compassion for those outside of the body that don't know you, that we would invite them into the hospital uh, to be cured and to be healed. We thank you for everything that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, 